0: God's brave love part 2 Christianity does not originate with its teachers we learn that from scripture first peter 1 of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you there were many prophets involved in announcing the arrival of Christ The world doesn't know these things as a rule. The Holy Spirit looks to us to get this information to co-workers, neighbors, whoever we may be able to engage. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Well, the first three verses, of course, introduce this servant and his time of suffering. The servant that was mentioned way back in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Then, uh, even in chapter 52, in verse 13, we're reminded of this servant. And now we have, really, the last time he's going to appear in Isaiah's prophecy. After chapter 53, this coming Messiah does not show up as he does In this section, it's as though the main thing has been said. And on the strength of that, God moves forward. But this is the gospel message here in verse 4, bearing the griefs and the sorrows of a people that don't deserve it. The sinless servant dying as a sacrifice for sinners. This is basic Christianity. Doing what no one even knew to ask him to do. I mean, how would Adam and Eve have gotten out of that mess? Well, what would their solution be? Fig leaves, the best they could do. And mankind hasn't changed. Man has no answer to sin. The scientists, the engineers, uh, the great minds, the philosophers, what are you going to do with sin? This stuff is killing us. If we don't do something about it, it's going to keep killing us. Well, that's what it's been doing ever since Eden. One of the great testimonies of the trustworthiness of Scripture. No one has anything that's this sensible. The sacrifice is at the heart of Israel's religious system since Eden, since the animals that were sacrificed for the guilty. In Leviticus 16 is rather a lengthy address on this issue. Not only there, but that's one of them. He says, surely he has borne our griefs. Well, if you're reading this, you're an ancient Jew in the days of Isaiah, you understand this is a person. Someone's coming along to do all of this. It's not abstract, he has borne our griefs. No, it's someone's coming. And many of the Jews figured it out in the days of Christ. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, two of the rich men that squeezed through the eye of the needle, they figured it out. That surely he has. It's indisputable. They weren't um, the prophets. They weren't uh, foggy about what they had to say. Not only suffering with us, for us, bearing our griefs, carrying our sorrows. Well, to where? Anywhere but anywhere away from me would do. Now, Matthew partially applies this section of Isaiah, this first clause, to the healings and deliverance from demons that Jesus was carrying out during his earthly ministry. Matthew was flashing the credentials of Messiah. He's saying this is who Isaiah was talking about, just this part. Of course, the rest of all of Isaiah 53, but he takes this part of Isaiah 53 while Jesus is doing the healing to say, see, this is him. Nobody else is doing anything like this. Matthew, notorious for pointing to the scriptures and saying, see, told you so. And he does it 15 times by just saying that it would be fulfilled. That it is fulfilled. Constantly pointing back to their Bible. Told you the prophets called it. He's doing it, not you. you got to love Matthew for that. He's very careful. He's writing to the Jews, Matthew is. Specifically to the Jews. Luke, mainly to Gentiles. Mark, to a mixture. Gentiles, Jews. John, mainly to Gentiles. But Matthew, he's writing to his own people who had this scripture. So he partially applies it, but he makes no comment about, at that point in in Matthew 8, he makes no comment about the atoning death. He says, Christ is fulfilling that part about the sorrows and the grief of the people. But what about the sins, Matthew? Well, he's only giving us partial at that point. He'll get back to that later. Peter does a similar thing. He gives a partial application to Joel's prophecy on the day of Pentecost. This is what the prophet Joel talked about. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. This is, what, this is what Joel was talking about. It wasn't an absolute fulfillment. There's more to Joel's prophecy to come. There still remains unfulfilled elements of that section of Joel's prophecy. There's nothing wrong with them pointing out limited fulfillment because that alone is miraculous. You tried to do that. No, I can't do that. And carried out sorrows. Well, the servant carries me and you. This is illustrated for us as though though God takes out a paintbrush and paints pictures, word illustrations through events that took place. Where did he paint a picture of Christ carrying our sorrows? John 19, and he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull. Well, that's always death. The skull, there's nothing cozy and friendly about a skull. It speaks of death. And that's where he went, bearing his cross, carrying our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Well, his enemies told themselves that he had to suffer because he blasphemed. They trumped up charges. Their hatred was so blinding that they made themselves unrecoverable. The the point, a tipping point, when something is so far gone, it cannot be brought back. There are physical laws, physics, and there are spiritual laws. And within those spiritual laws, there are uh, decrees and rules that are binding. And uh, those Where it says, yet we esteemed him stricken. His enemies, again, telling themselves that he deserved this. Uh, Not even consulting their own scriptures. You think one of them would have raised their hand and said, "Um, wait a minute. There's something like this in Isaiah where he says, who has believed our report? Because we're not believing it. Well, some tried to protest, but they were shut down. I'll come to that in a little bit smitten by God and afflicted. Well, why did God smite him? Because he bore the iniquity of us all. He took what we deserved. And afflicted. You well know, that's what happens when you handle sin, and which he was doing for us. And the prophet is very clear to all the generations that Christ, the suffering of Christ, was under the total control of the Godhead. At no point did they lose control. It was systematic. It was foreordained. And it is, uh, there's nothing like it. Neither his griefs nor his sorrows were his own. Well, in an odd way, it was. Because he grieved and sorrowed over man's condition. His fallen state. Otherwise, he would have said, look at that. They messed up. Oh, well, what's for lunch? But he doesn't do that. He's ready already. He knows man is going to have a free will. It's going to mess it up. And God has a plan in place. But he will have what he wants. And what he wants are people who love him and look to obey him without ever seeing his eyes. Without ever looking him in the face. As the angels were able to do. All for someone else, he goes through this. I don't like to stand on line for somebody else. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's a vocation there, you know, professional line stander. You go to King's Dominion, and you know, I don't want to stand on line. I'll hire a guy to do it for me, and he can just call me when it's done. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes... We are healed. That disjunctive, but, is, it's abrupt. In it, it, verse 4, if you read it with, with verse 4, smitten by God and afflicted, but, abrupt, very important. It's not insignificant. And here's why. Humanity has no way to deal with its filth and the outcome of its wrong behavior. So that, but he was wounded for our transgressions, not his own. And the spikes through his wrist and feet, they did not kill him. They wounded him. They did not kill him. No man takes my life. I lay it down. They couldn't kill God. He gave up the spirit, which amazed everybody. Who can do that? Who can check out verbally, say, you know what, I'm done. (laughs) That's what he did. Psalm 22. They pierce my hands and my feet. What, do you, what does a Jew do with that when you tell him you missed your Messiah? There's no way now. If Jesus is not the Messiah, you will never have one. The Davidic records are gone. The fulfillment of just Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, enough. Not counting Isaiah 9 or 6. No, 9. It's upside down. First Corinthians 11 This is my body which is broken for you. Well, that's what's meant here. But he was wounded for our transgressions. I attended an Assemblies of God church for about two years when I first became a believer. And one of my fondest memories about that church, uh, there were two fond memories. The pastor would step into the pulpit Sunday morning and say, Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. And I was just, Oh man, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be a believer. I'm so happy to not be on a construction site with all the foul mouths and thoughts and just the impurities. I was, I loved that in part and have worked it into my own ministry. The other one was on communion. You know, communion music, there's a time to to weep and there's a time to, to rejoice. Sometimes, you know, the communion tables are a time to rejoice, but sometimes... The Lord wants to to lay it on us a little bit, be a little bit more, uh, to reflect more on all that takes place. And so sometimes the communion songs can be upbeat, and uh, we rejoice in them, and sometimes they can be, you know, a little bit more somber, uh, depending on the leading of the Spirit with the musicians, with the worship leader. But in that Assemblies of God Church, they had, a, when communion was given, they would sing these, this verse verbatim. And I, I'm not going to even make an attempt to do it. It was a slow kind of song. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised. And it was just, to me, so moving, so powerful, because it was right out of Scripture. And the communion table speaks of this very thing. Uh, he was bruised for our iniquities, plain and to the point. The trauma inflicted on him, physically, by, with fists and rods, with whips and spikes. Matthew 27, then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Was that necessary? That reed didn't hurt that much. It wasn't a, a, like a, a piece of oak stick or something. It was more humiliating than anything. Some friend witnessed or heard some ally of Christ heard about or witnessed that and it touched them. By his humiliation, they were touched and it it found its way into the record, into the scripture that they spat on him and they struck him on the head with a reed. Why? Their hatred they the unrighteousness of man. And this was the creator of the universe in human form. And they were too far out there to see it. Not that may, some of them did not get at the cross. Some of the Roman soldiers admitted this is the son of God. Matthew 26, verse 67. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with pa- the palms of their hands. He suffered these abuses to destroy the works of the devil. This is Christian theology. Why did Jesus come? Well, we're told in several places, we'll take two. Jesus, of course, saying the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. John echoes that. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? To destroy what the devil has done to humanity. That's why he came. And whenever we're obnoxious... Whenever we are rude and petty and self-exalting and mean-spirited and lustful and all the other things that go with the flesh, it's the works of the devil in us. And Christ came to get these things out of us so we could walk in the spirit, not give in to the temptations of the flesh. Sin has the fingerprints of man all over it. Salvation only has the blood-stained fingerprints of Christ. The only begotten Son of God. The Christmas story is joyful. But the passion weak, the passion of Christ, the going to the cross, is more powerful. Christ didn't have to be born of a virgin to accomplish what he did. Well, he did because he made the prophecy to do it this way. But he could have just showed up like Elijah. And lived that life before us and went to the cross and died. What makes Christ powerful? Because he really, the birth was only the incarnation. It wasn't the beginning like with us. It's our beginning when we are conceived and we come from the womb. We are, it's our beginning. But he is eternal. He's always been. He's without beginning, without end. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Well, nothing was easy about the cross. Nothing was easy about the cross. It was not like, well, okay, this part's not so bad. It was for our peace, um, and this peace that, in its most perfect state, is activated at death. Our peace, our true peace, is activated at our death. Romans 5 1 therefore having been justified by faith not feeling like I'm good with god because i'm feeling good with god that that's insane it that doesn't work is by faith i've made my decision based on the evidence and I'm not moving from it regardless of how i feel when your feelings take control just the tail wagging the dog ironically a dog's tail indicates his feelings is they not Therefore, we have been justified by faith, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul could have said, and no one else. You know, not necessary. By his stripes, we are healed. His pain, his blood, his shame, our salvation. <clears throat> Make no mistake. Not only was there physical pain, there was shame to go with it. This was all done out in public. Grace is always ready to abound from God's perspective. <clears throat> God's grace is not weaker than our sin. And Satan will tell us that. Psalm 103. <clears throat> who forgives all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Now, if you have a disease, you say, Lord, you claim this verse. and The Lord often says, I'm going to heal it when you get here. But I will heal it. Assurance is faith-based, not Feelings-based. Emotional-ism destroys things. Does not make it better. Maybe at a dance or something or a sporting event. Even then, it gets out of hand and you have trouble. We are not saved so long as we feel like we're saved. Oh, that would be horrible. I'm saved so long as I feel like I'm saved. What about when you're not? That's when I need it. I need grace and faith to kick in. When I can't carry it, I need it to be there. And we'll come to recurring grace in a little bit. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not feelings. And that not of yourselves. Don't go patting yourself on the back. Not, not because of anything in us except the reception of what has been offered. It's the gift of God. Uh, you know, uh, if someone gives you a gift, you, you don't have to accept it. We, most of the time we do. Some of those gifts are valuable. Some end up in the garage. <laughs> Until they come over. <laughs> Here's a picture you gave me. Anyway, <clears throat> with God it's a whole different thing. Paul said to the Corinthians that Christ, the substance is of Christ. The substance is of Christ. Not the shadow. Not a sign. The substance. The real thing. Him. Him. Colossians 2.17, the substance is of Christ. That's a meaty religion, a meaty faith. It's, not, uh, it's something that when you're in the trenches and everything's falling apart, you still know what's true and you're not moving from it. You failed, but you're not moving from it. Or maybe someone else has failed. failed you. You know who the Lord is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The proof of things not seen. Invisible proofs. They exist. They exist. It's amazing. We can say, we can look back 30 years, 40 years, for some of us. And we can say, I could see it like it was yesterday. How, did, how does the brain record these things? There's evidence. There's unseen things that, that are real. And faith lays hold of them. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Still very Jewish at this point. It, it will not become uh, human and uh, globally human for all groups, all peoples, until the New Testament arrives. Though it was available, as I pointed to Jonah last um, Sunday, all we like like sheep in this regard applies to everyone who's ever been conceived, of course, except Christ. When sheep go astray, they never find themselves. They never bump back into where they strayed from. They bump into the wolf or something else. The shepherd has to go out and find them or the sheep perishes. This is why. This is the the keenest of metaphor describing God's people. We have turned. No man is born facing away from God. You are born in iniquity. Born in sin. You have to be born again. The first one's not good enough. We accept this. We rejoice in these things they're inescapable truths. And from there, we repent. We have turned from God. Repentance is turning back to him. Everyone to his own way. We are sinners by choice, and we are sinners by nature. They go together. It is the head and heart of our sin. Like sheep, we are born with a nature that prompts us to stray. If you, you know, you, you, in more civilized areas, you drive along, you see the sheep out in the field, there's fences around to keep the sheep in. And even the shepherd has to, when he goes to sleep, make sure that they're, they're, somehow they're protected. By choice, we become children of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 2, you can cross-reference that. I'll give you another one. Like sheep effortlessly, we decide to go our own way. By nature, by choice, we are sinners. Ephesians 2, 3. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a lot of sin put on one person. That's all humanity. So if, if how do you do the math on that? How do you calculate how many people have been born? Because all of them are sinners. And all their sins have been laid on him. Every generation, their sins have been dealt with. Whether this received or not, it's another matter. So, Proverbs 20, verse 9. And this is just, listen to the, the wisdom behind this question. It's rhetorical. Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? No one. Uh, they can lie and know they're lying. Second Corinthians 5 Which to me, the the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians is sort of like a condensed version of Romans. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He became my sin on the cross, everyone. And uh, that, that, the salvation and righteousness could be available at the invitation of the gospel message. Why, why do people in this country get to hear the gospel offered to them time and time again and think there's no consequence to that? And then there are those in other parts of the world that never get to hear the gospel. So if we catch the plural pronouns in verses 4 through 6 from this ancient prophet, how powerful is this? And this is, not care how old or young you are. The youngest child in the church building at any time is not old enough to act on their sin but all of the codes are there there's no need that anybody should download anything to help them sin later they can do it on their own you have to train a child not to do things so we listen to this these personal or these plural pronouns our griefs and our our griefs and sorrows our iniquities, our transgressions, we have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. So it's all about you. Sin is. The next time a person says, it's all, well, I don't know if anybody that. That vein, where I guess there are some, where it's all about me. Yes, it is. Let me take you to Isaiah 4, 53 verses 4 and 6. He suffered and died because of what you did. With your hours and wheeze. Verse, five, uh, verse 7 now, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You want to say, wait a minute, Isaiah, you could not. Were you standing at the cross when this happened? Were you at the trial and the arrest? When the, were you there in, from Gethsemane to the empty tomb? How do you see these things 700 years before Christ was born? He was mistreated and he was battered. How do, how do you measure the mistreatment of God's only begotten Son at the hands of dirty people? How do you measure that crime, that audacity? Rejected, arrested, bound, mocked, blasphemed, shamed, spat on, scourged, forced to carry his own cross, then murdered on it in front of everybody. Yet he opened not his mouth. The silence of one in perfect agreement with the methods of God. Who here likes all the methods of God? I don't think any person being honest. I like everything God uh, allows. I like everything God is about, who he is, his word. I love that. But I also understand what's going on. And sometimes I don't care for the methods that are used, but I don't have perfect knowledge. He does. And by faith, I submit to that. We submit to that. And this is what we're seeing here. The difference is Christ knew where all this is going. He said, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour for this hour I have come. And how I wish it has already passed. Yet he opened on his mouth. And, and remember now, he was never discouraged, never defeated, and never disgusted with the work he had to do. Isaiah 42, verse 4. Remember, verse 1 of Isaiah 42, he introduces us to this servant. And he says this about him in the fourth verse. He will not fail nor be discouraged. So, I mean, of course, if someone said, hey, I want you to die for this guy over here. you I'm not going to do that. We might for a loved one or someone that we held in such esteem or on the battlefields, but not under these circumstances. Barabbas gets to go free, but he gets to die on the cross that was meant for Barabbas. So his silence marks his willingness to die for sinners. He was silent when he stood before the high priest Caiaphas, who was a fraud and a gangster. Matthew 26, he didn't say anything to him. Not, not much. The chief priest and elders, Matthew 27, silent before them. Before Pilate. I mean, he's conversed slightly with all of them except one. With Pilate, Pilate was marveled that he wouldn't, you know, defend himself. That's what the silence is about. He wouldn't say, you know, there's no charges against me that are legal. You know, this is a kangaroo court. He didn't say anything like that. He didn't deny when asked, are you the king of the Jews? That's the way it is. But then there's Herod Antipas, who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. And he is the only person in the Bible who the Son of God... Had absolutely nothing to say to. Talk about contempt. Righteous contempt. Luke chapter 23. Speaking of Herod Antipas. Then he questioned him, Jesus, with many words. But he answered him nothing. I mean, that is profound. That there would be someone that God would completely ignore. And a ruler of amongst people. Anyway, he did not speak when the soldiers mocked him and as they beat on him. He was determined to embrace the cross without so much as hinting that he wanted out to the people. He brings it up in Gethsemane to the Father, more on display for us, because he knew what would be recorded and he knew what those recordings would teach He knew it would be in the Bible, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And he knew that we would realize it isn't possible. If we're going to be forgiven, you're going to have to drink the whole cup. This, This silence of Christ impressed the Ethiopian treasurer. And as he read this passage, he asked Philip, who does he speak about, himself or someone else? And of course, Philip took the opportunity to share the gospel with the Ethiopian who came to Christ, incidentally. But it was this passage that worked on his heart. It struck him. Why is he doing this? Maybe when you first read the gospel, did you not say, boy, he can get get out of this. But he doesn't. And he he cannot. Um, My friend John Connors in Brooklyn, he's, he's older than me in the Lord. He's older than me in life, too, like really old. But anyway, <clears throat> we were there in Midtown Manhattan doing our thing on lunch break or whatever, and these Moonies, Sun, you know, <laughs> Moonies were not what you might think. <laughs> uh, they, they didn't show you on, on anyway. They were a cult, and uh, you know they 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 sound like they they have the gospel. And John flayed them in one second. He said, did Christ have to go to the cross? And that was the end of it. Because they felt, no, he didn't. Because they don't understand. He had to go to the cross to die for our sins because you're a sinner. That's why they try to deny. Well, he really didn't have to go to a cross. He was a good man. They shouldn't have killed him. No, he had to die. If you were going to get anywhere near heaven, he had to die. And and that ended the whole the whole thing. And I was like, what? That's pretty good. <laughs> So, and I never had to deal with a Mooney. My tactics were a little different. I found that physical violence could shut them up pretty quickly, too. But no, no, I did not, no. Anyway, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Well, God's lamb. Lambs were used in the offering on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That's the big day for the Jews, a solemn day. And Lambs were also used in the sacrifice at Passover. Well, together, the two, Day of Atonement and the Passover, speak of sin and judgment and possible salvation, if you'll have it. And he is the Lamb of God. He speaks of sin and judgment and possible salvation, if you will receive it. In Revelation, John, who scribed for us the revelation of Jesus Christ, He refers to Jesus as the Lamb 28 times in 22 chapters. As if to say, we'll never forget. We'll never forget. You're the Lamb of God. You died for us. It's all connected to the prophets. This was not spontaneous. This was mapped out. It was charted out. No one stumbled into this. It was laid out for us and is nothing like it on earth. And this submissive, submissive nature of him as the lamb was a one-time event. Next he comes as a lion. And we love that, do we not? We love that he if he didn't if he came as a lion, we'd be dead in our sins if he came the first time as a lion. Because lions don't put up with much. <laughs> but a lamb is different. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So this is when they take they harvest the wool from the sheep. And it's perfect. The imagery is perfect. It is as though again Isaiah followed Christ from Gethsemane to Golgotha. When they came to arrest him, "Are you Jesus?" Uh, "I am." They couldn't handle that, they all fell down over. <laughs> you just see it's it only like the Keystone Cops when he says that, and they all fall. They probably dismissed it. It's just a clumsy moment. In the dark. But it was the power of God. And we know it. Verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. You're not going to get away in Isaiah 53. From this transgression sin deal. And you're not going to get away from it. In your own conscience either. But it should be a settled deal. There is now therefore no condemnation. What glorious words were that? The Christians before Paul wrote that they knew it by the teachings of Christ and the voice of the apostles as they preached what Christ taught them. He was taken from prison and from judgment. That's the kangaroo court. Nicodemus at one point objected. Not in the latter, in the middle stages of of their vitriol against Christ, he objected. John chapter 7, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And they ganged up on him. He does not protest again on record. They, by hate, jailed and judged their own Messiah. That is how powerful the hatred of man can be. Don't hate anybody. Just don't do it. Uh, it's, it's not going to reward. It's, it's going to hurt. Uh, that doesn't mean we, you, we we love what people do, or we're not we're not naive as to what to do about certain people. Certain people need to be executed. Certain people need to be put in jail and taken out of society. But it, the hating them won't won't help them, and it won't help you. Uh, that trial. It was injustice cloaked in legal formalities and processes of jurisprudence? It was just all nonsense. They had made up their mind, hate made up their mind, he's gonna die and he's gonna to die tonight. We're gonna to get, it was, a, it was an execution. And who will declare his generation? Now, there are two applications to this. The first is he has no biological children. Well, he didn't, you know, was cut down at 33 and a half years old. Plenty of time for him to have a family. And in that culture, that was, you know, a high uh, part of their society. No biological children, but he has spiritual children. And that's mapped out for us. So he was cut off in the prime of his life and left no descendants. Isaiah 54, of course, the next chapter, the first verse, Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud, you who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says Yahweh. Well, there's a lot of truth in that one, but we're not going to get into that verse right now. Uh, you know, the first, the first purpose of marriage is companionship. And not everybody is um, to get married. If you are without, if you are outside of marriage, you're in high company. I'll just name three of them. Daniel, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ. And as a bonus, we throw in Paul. So, uh, you know, you have to go with what God has given you. Identify it. And then work it. Develop it. It'll take a lifetime to do that. And it's worth it. Uh, You know, you you have to have many tools in a workshop. And some of the tools are like Daniel and John the Baptist and Paul. Well, the second application, using the various Old Testament genealogies of Matthew and Luke. Remember, who will declare his generation? Okay, he's not going to have any offspring. He's cut down in the prime of his life. That's one. The second one is that the genealogies were available in his lifetime. The rightful claim to the Davidic throne. No one challenged Isaiah's, or or accepted Isaiah's challenge. When Isaiah said, who will declare his generation? Nobody said, Lord, let me run down to the temple. I'll grab the records, and I will show you the lineage of Christ, that he is a rightful heir to the throne of David. His connection to Messiah is not something that you can dismiss. But nobody did that. The genealogies weren't published, as far as we know, of Christ in in the sense of Messiah until Matthew and Luke come along. So no one declared his genealogy that we knew of amongst those who murdered him. uh, That he is indeed king of the Jews. And he told that to Pilate. He told that to a Gentile. I am the king of the Jews. It is as you say. For he was cut off from the land of the living. Again, his death was a murder. <clears throat> Webster defines murder as the crime of unlawfully killing a person. And his trial was not lawful. And so uh, they they murdered him. Uh, even idolatrous Gentiles knew of his innocence. I find no fault in him, said Pilate three times. imagine going to a, a court in this country and the judge says innocent, innocent, innocent now take him out and kill him. that's what Pilate did. I find no fault. that was a, a, a lawful uh, decision in John 1838 and John 194 and in John 19 verse 6 Pilate again thrice said, I don't have any he, he's innocent. that didn't stop the mob. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Well, he never transgressed God, not once. And uh, in verse 5, the same idea of him being abused uh, is introduced. The difference is that initially, in verse 5, it's the suffering on the way to the cross, but now at this point, it's going to be his execution, death itself. When he says, my people... Um, it, it may, it could, it could apply several, we could set several applications, but all of them would be right. It could be God saying, my people, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Then you have to uh, identify who's God's people. Uh, but those who come and receive the benefit from all that took place because of this, or the prophet Isaiah could have in mind um, his, you know his, his people in, in the day that he was preaching or the Jewish people. So you can have you can say it's either believers or it's Jewish peoples. Uh, the Holy Spirit knew that ultimately the application would be understood to, to mean all who believe in Christ. All who believe in Christ will benefit from him being stricken and all who reject the message will not benefit and that's why he uh, will come to the many, Verses not everyone. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Well, he had allies amongst the rich because they knew he was not evil. Um, Again, sentenced as a criminal with the expectation that he would receive a criminal's burial. That was the Sanhedrin's expectation. They're the ones that petitioned Pilate. Break his legs. It's the Sabbath. Let him die and then cart his body into the ditch with the other outlaws. That was their intention. But they were never in control, even though they thought. They were in control of their hearts and their actions, but not of all that was taking place. And had it not been for Joseph of Arimathea... That's exactly what would have happened. But God knows, God was ahead of them the whole time. They intended this disgraceful death and a disgraceful burial for daring to oppose them. How dare you disagree with me? How dare you point out that I'm not holier than thou? Because Jesus did that just by doing what he was doing, just by healing people and preaching sermons on the righteousness of God and the iniquity of men. So the burial of Jesus Christ is as much a part of the gospel as is his death. Now, don't miss that. The burial is just as much a part of the gospel as is the death because the burial is proof that he actually died. And without that, the resurrection is kind of pointless. You have to have a confirmed death. And he did die. And um, rose again, and Paul gets into that in First Corinthians fifteen, and takes up the, almost the whole chapter on the resurrection. These were the authorized custodians of Scripture, and they never to, they never bothered to look into Isaiah fifty three, or they just conveniently ignored it. But the with the rich at his death. Uh, As I mentioned, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both wealthy men, both brought uh, brought a substantial amount of uh, frankincense and myrrh for the preparation of the body. Um, It's interesting that death in the Hebrew here is plural. And it focuses on the two deaths that are associated with sin. There is the death of the body, and there's the death of the relationship with God. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 2. In the day that you eat of this tree, you will die. And though physically they did not die instantly, spiritually they did. That relationship was no longer going to be the same ever again. Uh, not in this side of heaven. And so Messiah, his spiritual death and taking and becoming sin for us. He became sin. He who knew no sin. Became sin for us. He took our sin on him. And that is the spiritual death. And then, of course, the death of his body. Uh, temporary. Both of them temporary. Second Corinthians 5. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And thus we have, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, you've got sin on you. And, and, and you know, in that in that state, there's a severance. But that state did not remain. And we're going to come to that in a minute. What happened? What happened after uh, he died and paid the price? What At that instant. didn't take but an instant. Because he had done no violence, it says here in verse 9. The rich, uh, they were there... Uh, with him, as I mentioned, the two rich men that made it through the eye of the needle. Remember Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, here's two men that went through that needle and they'll be in heaven. There are many of them. Abraham was rich, uh, which the prosperity teachers love to point out with their gold teeth. Anyway, (laughs) that's a caricature. Uh, For uh, it says here in verse 9, nor was any deceit found in his mouth well that's what he said of nathaniel the first time well it was the first time he engaged him not the first time he saw him he saw nathaniel and nathaniel did not see him as he does with all of us john chapter 1 verse 47 behold an israelite indeed in whom is no deceit no guile and you know do you like a person around in your life that's always lying to you deceiving you you can't trust them Oh man, I, I want to believe you. I do want to believe you. Uh, it's a messed up situation when someone has so forfeited trust uh, too many times. Anyway, verse ten. Yet it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. He has put on him no. Uh, he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Godhead was settled on this within the Trinity. Um, You know, we try to describe the Trinity, a triangle in three corners, you know, um, height, width, depth, all joined together, but still one thing. Uh, it's, It's just... Best we could do, but it's sufficient, either, at least it is for me. Uh, but they were settled on this. His life and his death were mapped out, not an accident. He alone was wor- a worthy sacrifice, something that we have to point out to unbelievers. They're not going to know this. Uh, maybe there's some residue from Christian exposure in their life, and they might get it. But without assistance, they're not going to go very far. Uh, we don't deserve his love. Mary was not sinless and could never have been on his level, could never have been on the cross for us, neither could any of the apostles or prophets, no one but God. It was not the bruising that pleased the Father, it was the selfless sacrifice for the unworthy. That teaches us about the heart of God and his care for sinners. It's almost um, insulting. You, you could look at it this way. It's almost insulting to challenge God's grace. It's almost insulting to, to not believe that His love is more powerful than our sin. That our sin does not cancel out His love. The only thing that could can cancel out the love of God is a willful, deliberate final defiance of who he is. Um, otherwise, well, sin's not going to do that. And what comes out of that realization is this desire to please him and to not sin. And that is a serious thing, and Satan knows it, and he fears it. Every writer of the New Testament makes reference to these last three verses in Isaiah, in the story of Christ except for James and Jude. Now, now that's not a demerit on their part. They just, what they were dealing with didn't go in that direction. But Matthew, Luke, Mark, Paul, Peter, uh, John, they all quote this section. Isaiah is the most quoted of the Old Testament prophets in the New Testament. He has put him to grief. God paid the price. When you make his soul an offering for sin. Well, he's the Lamb of God. And that's where you know he took our sin upon him, and cried out, oh, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Well, because of sin. That's the answer. But it was just a flash, and that's all it took. Mankind, apart from Jesus Christ, is nothing to offer God. What does man? What do? What are you gonna? You know, I'm sorry, the little drummer boy. When you that well, won't take take his sins away. It's a nice little story at the Christmas season. You know, everybody out the gold and the myrrh and somebody created, hey, there's a drum boy. All you could do is play this beat. (laughs) Well, that's fine. But it wouldn't take away his sin. Neither would the gold or the myrrh that they offered the baby Jesus or his parents. That wouldn't take away their sin. Only the blood of Christ did that. And so the sin offering has to do with the principle of violating God's will. The trespass offering has something to do With practicing doing that. So you have the sin offering that deals with the principle of sin. You have the trespass offering that deals with the practice of sin. Uh, God is uh, very clear. In in the Old Testament sacrifices, they tell man what's messed up. And what God's view of these things are. And God's view of sin is bloody. He doesn't wink at it. It's very serious. He shall see his seed. Well, his generation was denied physically. Who will declare his generation? But his spiritual offer offspring are innumerable. Those who spiritually... Um, and, and this is covered... Uh, I'm not going to quote it because we're almost out of time. Well, we take Hebrews chapter 2, verse, verse 13. We could do that. I don't like these silent moments. I like to keep talking. <laughs> Verse 13. Again, uh, again I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. So there's other scriptural precedents for this teaching to, to, to back it up. It's not just, um, hey, I got a good idea. Uh, it, it is scriptural. Again, you can reference Isaiah 8.18. He shall prolong his days. Well, what does that mean? It means he didn't remain dead. That's what that means. Never again. Uh, Hebrews 9, 28. uh, Christ died once. Never again will will he die. And so now we get back to, uh, I I told, you know, what is the outcome of becoming sin for us? The judgment. The Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Then what? Well, to the victor go the spoils. And he's the victor. Ephesians 1 and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Ephesians 4.8. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. That is the victor claiming his spoil. He set souls free. He became sin. Then what? He set the captives free. He paid the price. Fully. He drank the dregs of the cup. He didn't go halfway and become almost sin. Or get close to our sin. He took it all on him. And he spiritually satisfied the payment. But it would be useless to an individual. If they don't accept it. Which is the whole purpose of John chapter 1 verse 12. Um, I have received him. So anyway. um, And the. Pleasure of our Lord shall prosper in his hand. A commentary on the Godhead um, that this is something that God wanted to do, as painful as it was. Jesus of Nazareth, as the hand of God for salvation, shall prosper in his hand. Now the 11th verse. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I mean, I love this. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Uh, Christ was pleased with the outcome. When he sees the souls in heaven that have converted to him from life without him, he's happy about that. It is the joy of our salvation. It is, we bless God by that. You know, you can bless God by just being his child. You know, you have a little toddler, one-year-old, and you're just in the outside with them, and they're running around, and they're just blessing you. They don't even know it. They're giggling and running and doing everything, but they're blessing you as an adult. Well, there's some of that between God and us. We can just bless Him by, being, by belonging to Him. Blessing in the sense of pleasing, of bringing joy. It's what God wants, soul save. So the cross of Christ, the redemption of man... The resurrection of Christ, the kingdom age, the new heaven and the new earth, all of that are built in. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There he is, equal with the Father, uh, there in the Godhead, but who for the joy that was set before him. What's that? To save souls. That's the only thing that that could ever be. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing how the the value God puts on us. Convert. The sin, the angels rejoice when one sinner repents. Because it brings pl- pleasure to God too. That's what God wants. And we have all these naysayers out there. How could I loving God? And it's just so full of error. And 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 poison and bitterness by his knowledge, his divine knowledge. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 42, a greater than Solomon is here. Yeah, because he got more knowledge than Solomon ever had. Solomon's the wisest guy in the world. You know, the the wisest fool is what he turned out to be. But Christ set it all right as to this is what it should have been. Uh, And it speaks to both Solomon, uh, greater than Jonah, is here, and certainly the, the, the second Adam, the, the, the man that God intended man to be. My righteous servant shall justify many. Now now we come to recurrent cleansing. My, why, not, why does it say he shall justify many? Because it's not everyone. It's not a universal salvation. There are those that teach the universal fatherhood of God. Well, God loves all people. Nobody's going to hell. And and that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible very clearly says that there is a penalty for defying God, for being against Him. Now, this recurrent cleansing, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, There are those that have a bad doctrine here. They think that if you sin as a Christian and you forget to repent or don't get a chance to repent or don't see that you need to repent, when you do repent, your sin is still on you. Well, that's salvation by works. That's not what the Bible teaches. 1 John 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. He died for anyone who would come to receive him. So... Blood. This you know Paul Brand brings this out and fearfully and wonderfully made he was a surgeon and he talks about how blood cleanses as it flows through. So if you hold your arms up in the air, after a while, you know, they, they become painful because the the flow of blood from the heart is not moving through the veins and carrying rich oxygen and cleaning out um, you know, the metabolism, the, the lactic acids that build up in there. You need blood to push that out. And that's what the blood of Christ does with sin and the guilt. The flow of the blood without recurrent cleansing. Salvation would be based on um, a, a password. And I bring this up because I've had... The topic is not suicide. The topic is recurrent cleansing. The blood of Jesus Christ. Those that will say, well, if you committed suicide, you go right to hell because you didn't get a chance to repent. So you don't understand. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for Christ Jesus. You can't arbitrarily come along and say, oh, but you didn't say the passwords." You're going to hell on a technicality. The grace is quite powerful. And I will remind you about the death of Solomon. He didn't get to repent, did he? Solomon is listed in Hebrews 11 as among the faithful of God. Not Solomon, Samson. They're just testing you. <laughs> uh, this is serious stuff because, you know, if, if, if you die, if you die, you say, say, say there's a sin you committed, but you're not sure it's a sin. You think you're right, and you say, maybe I'm wrong, and you go to sleep, and then you die in your sleep, and now you're going to hell because you never repented. That person doesn't understand salvation. That person does not understand the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, like the blood that flows through the veins. It's not dependent on a password. It's dependent on my confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing more powerful than that. And Satan can't stop it. And I love it. It does not applaud sin. It just makes, it says, your salvation is not made out of eggshells. I don't know why Christians want to fuss about that. I think some Christians have a mentality where it's their role to bulldoze as many people into hell as they can with their theology. You know, the ones that say, it's rigged. Sorry, you weren't chosen. It's rigged. You didn't have a choice. <laughs> Gosh, come on. How can you even say such a thing? If you did that with somebody else, they would charge you with all sorts of crimes. But you, you, you ascribe that to God. Anyway, let's finish this. Uh, so much more. Many, um, as Paul said to Thessalonians... Not all have faith. First um, Peter chapter 2, He himself bore our sins in his own body on a tree. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. Um, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for transgressors. This is an epilogue to the to all of the chapter, the fifty third chapter, as we know it. It's a review of every the final word on what's been said in a language that we can understand. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. What does that mean? Well, uh, introduce it with Philippians two nine. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name. They're very clear. There's, there's, you know Brigham Young, one of the great theologians of Mormonism? Do you know he? they name universities after this guy? He believed people lived on the sun. You can check it all you want. Too late. He said it. He's dead. He can't take it back. He believed that. Let's name a university after him. This is the madness of men. And, but, but I bring them up because, you know, they, they try to say that Jesus was the brother of Satan. I mean, they come up with these things. Like, can't, you, can't you just accept the word of God for what it is? I'll give you a choice. Accept the Bible. or Never mind, never mind. It's just flesh rearing up. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. What does that mean? It sounds like there are some equals, but there's not. That's why I, just, that's why I prefaced it with Philippians. Those reigning in the millennium with Christ. Who's that going to be? When he sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem. Amongst people who never experienced death on earth. And death will be almost non-existent. And people will multiply like rabbits. How are they going to learn about the gospel? It's not going to be through osmosis. Somebody's going to have to teach them. And what about the, the whole world? You know, globally. The, the, the deserts are going to bloom again. There's going to be real estate everywhere. Revelation 5.10 and he has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. I believe that's what that has to do. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. He's taking other people with him into the kingdom age to be part of his kingdom, and they will have authority and righteousness. And that will be us, because he poured out his soul unto the death. Unto death. There's the result. Romans five five. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God has got this thing for pouring. The other problem is is that um, we have a flesh that can clog up the line if we're not careful. And he was numbered with the transgressors. I wish we had more time for this. But this, from the incarnation uh, to the baptism and the crucifixion, well, I take the baptism because this is just one of the fun ones He lined up with those ready to go to John the Baptist and repent that they were not living the life according to the law of Moses. And John the Baptist was saying, you got to get right back to our roots in Scripture. And they were coming into the water to say, I'm going to get back. And uh, John, as Jesus came out for the first time, unless they met before, which is possible, but uh, at this moment... What he saw in the eyes of Jesus is not what he saw in any other human being ever. Matthew 3, 14, John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? And then Matthew will give us that it might be fulfilled. And, uh, of course, he baptized him. Uh, within three years, uh, we, we come to, um, for I say to you, that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. So within three years of his public ministry, we find Jesus saying, the scripture uh, in Isaiah applies to me. I will be numbered with the transgressors. He was already numbered at the baptism. He will be numbered on the cross between the two outlaws. And he bore the sin of many. Again, a repeated superlative for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And those who don't believe in him are not part of the many. Um, and made intercession for the transgressors. Uh, I'll close with this. He intercedes his finished work of the cross without saying a word. He does it through the cross. His intercession is blood red. He doesn't have to say a word to inter. Vien on our behalf. The cross finished the work and that's why he said it's finished. That intercedes for us for those who come to Christ. Well, I would like to develop that, but we're out of time uh, because we're facing a revolt in the children's ministry. Let's pray. Uh, you know, just to tell you what you missed out on, uh, the, G- the, the New Testament intercessions of Christ. Maybe I can work it into next session. Let's pray. Our Father who went along tonight um, <sighs> I would like to blame you, Lord. But, of course, that's just a a silly little thing. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.